Yes, operas by 12-year-olds are the low-rise jeans of the 1780s. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead get up close and personal with the lesser-known legacies and real-life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. You know what's beloved to me? Um, I mean, I could name a few things. Oh, really? What are the things you would name? Magic. Okay. Um... Like Magic the Gathering? No, like Magic David Copperfield. Okay. Houdini magic. Yes, yes. Um... Let's see, what else? Sleeping in, like, very late. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I do love that. I do love that. A New good Orleans. Sleep in. Uh, yeah, I love New Orleans. That's also true. Th- that, those would be my top three. Okay, I was going to say summertime. What? But it's so hot. It is, but I, God, compared to having me cold and miserable, I, yeah, I'm much, a much bigger fan of summer. You'd rather be hot and miserable. Oh, absolutely. Hot and miserable is my middle name. <laughs> that is... That is the name that was that I was given in birth. Oh yeah, on my birth certificate. The uh, the adjectives to describe you. My full Christian name, mm-hmm. hot and miserable. The reason that I actually prefer summer is because now it is finally time for the hot vac summer. Okay. Mm-hmm. And music. I really want to go see some music now. That is the that is the thing that I really want to do. You have been waiting for. Over a year to get back to see live music. Yes. Until now, for the last 15 months of my life, I have had my live music options consist exclusively of watching you play saxophone (laughs) and bassoon. And uh, not well, either of them. Yeah. No disrespect, but I'm ready for Mm -hmm. some variety in my life. Mm hmm. It's a really great segue also into this week's episode. If we're talking about live music and enjoying it, seeing it, living it. Oh my gosh, what a coincidence. It is. This week's hero is none other than Mozart. What do you know about Mozart? Uh, You mean Johann Sebastian Mozart? So close. (laughs) So close. (laughs) We know him as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Yes, I know that he was born in the 80s and they made a movie about his life. Just like any century 80s? Some of the 80s. The movie was from the 80s? I assume he was before then. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Okay, let's see what else. Uh, he he was a composer. Mm-hmm. Everybody's heard of this music before. Uh, Could you pick it out of a lineup? Yes. Okay. I think I think so. Sure. Uh, I, I believe you. I probably could not. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I I, I probably could. That's my guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is, I, I know very, very little about Mozart's life as a person. Okay. Well, it is, like all of our episodes, uh, more than you bargained for, in fact. So let's get into it. Let's start, actually, with his name. His, like, speaking of Christian name, his Christian name was actually Johann Chrysotomus Wolfgangus Theophilus Mozart. Wait, <laughs> there was a lot of us's at the end? Mm-hmm. What, what was that second name? So this one is, I'm actually not sure how to pronounce, but it's spelled like, it starts like chrysanthemum, but it's Chryso or Chrysostomus. 
Chrysostomus or Chrysostomus. Chrysostomus. That is a mouthful. I've literally never heard that name before in my life. Me either. That's why I can't pronounce it. Okay. Yes. (laughs) So starting just from the beginning, name more than you bargained for. Yes. Yes. Born January 27th, 1756. I was way off from the 1980s. Yeah. Just a couple hundred years. No problem. But, you know, what, what this means... Time for Audrey's astrology corner. No, no, no. You gotta do it with energy. You gotta you gotta do it do it its justice. You here. know you know what? I, I am being too apologetic. I am enthusiastic about this subject, and you're gonna eat it. It is time for Audrey's astrology corner. Officially eaten. Go for it. People born on January twenty seventh are Aquariuses. Or Aquarius I. <laughs> what? <laughs> Not sure. There it's an Aquarius is the zodiac. I was trying to say the plural. Yeah, it's Aquarii. Aquarii. Yeah, Aquarii. Mm-hmm. People born on January 27th. This is their birthday personality. The unique spirit and outstanding creative talents of people born on January 27th are often evident early in their lives, typically before they reach the age of 30, and the rest of their lives is spent developing these gifts to their full potential. They frequently write classical compositions in the 1700s. <laughs> yeah, come on. Somebody just read his Wikipedia page and wrote this one. This is too obvious. <laughs> Wait, I'm not done. Their greatest challenge is learning to control their emotions, and they're known for tapping into their motivation to prove themselves and push their limits. And they love the journey more than the arrival. They'll often frequently have a biopic made of their lives in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It's, it's a good match. Okay, let's see. Let's see if it holds true. Just more and more data proving <laughs> that this is an accurate way to predict someone's life. At this point, we've got like 30 episodes of high-quality data that you can't argue with. (laughs) It's true. I don't think any of them have been off. Maybe one or two, but that's it. (laughs) Maybe one or two. Back to Mozart. Born in Salzburg in what is now considered Austria, but at the time was ecclesiastical principality of the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, my. So I didn't know much about Salzburg in the 18th century. Here's a little snippet. It comprised the secular territories ruled by the archbishops of Salzburg, as distinguished from the much larger Catholic diocese founded in 739. Which means nothing to me. But you used to be Catholic. Anything we should add to that? Uh, No, I have uh, ecclesiastical principalities of the Holy Roman Empire. I think this is just based on his middle names and that. I think this is just a good time in history for long names is Mm -hmm. the sense I have. Mm -hmm. He was the youngest of seven children five of whom died in infancy, so he only had one older sister. And even for this time period, that is a disproportionate amount of children to die in infancy. And this is going to come up again later, but the death of his siblings, at least in my opinion, feels related to the fact that his father would not let his mother breastfeed, but instead fed the babies barley water. (laughs) Barley water? Is this like... uh... Like just mashed up barley? Is this like beer? What is this? I imagine it's like oat milk. It's a grain. Like it's sort of, I, I don't know. What I can tell you is it was like a semi-common practice, but- um, What you can tell me is it didn't work? It didn't work. Yikes. He has an older sister, Maria Anna Nenurl. Uh That is spelled N-A-N-N-E-R-L. That was her nickname. Wow. She's four years older than him. And by all accounts, they had a relatively good relationship. His father, Leopold, was described as, quote, a minor composer, but really his, like, main job was being a music teacher. And this sort of gives Mozart an advantage from the beginning. When he's three, he sees his older sister begin piano and violin lessons with their father. And the lore behind Mozart's life is that at this point, he was this, like, musical prodigy who was composing music by the time he was four. 
And uh, in a lot of ways, this is true. But it also helped that everyone in his family was constantly composing, teaching, or playing music. It was like a literal 24-7 thing in their home. And Mozart, not wanting to be left out, essentially demanded that his father begin teaching him the same time as his older sister. So built-in music teacher, and he's younger, so he's just, he gets an early start on the whole thing. Big time. Another key element in this like early relationship to music that Mozart had was, in addition to liking it, he was also exceptionally jealous when his father gave attention to other people, like other students, and especially when his father gave attention to his sister. So the way that he could keep his father's attention primarily on him was by being very interested in music. And because many of the students that his father taught had more years of experience than him, and obviously, like, garnered his father's praise accordingly, Mozart was described as being in, quote-unquote, catch-up mode in order to be, like, seeking this praise. This led him to be constantly practicing. He wanted to play as well as his older sister and the more advanced students who had more years of less dedicated practice. So he wanted to be better than the older kids, but... Because he wanted to compete for his father's attention. Just imagine if all of his siblings had survived. I know! Like, what a complex, man. Right? You wouldn't have made it. Just couldn't have handled it. No way. Yeah, and... Do, do, do we have any evidence that he killed his siblings? Well, he was the youngest. So, likely not. And only the last two survived. So, like, uh, five five deaths before the two surviving children. So, the, there is strong evidence he was not involved in their deaths then. Mm-hmm. Still, if they had been alive, it sounds like he would not have handled it well. He would not have. I'm trying to remember which hero we did who thought that he was the reborn version of his deceased older brother. Was that Freud? No, it was someone I did. And I can't remember who it was. We'll have to go back and look. Yeah. Yeah. Very much those vibes, though. Yes, very much those (laughs) vibes. Exactly. So music was never a punishment in his home. This was not a, like, you're going to sit here and practice and never get up. But it was used to help Mozart regulate his emotions. Apparently, he was like fairly tempestuous child and adult, (laughs) but (laughs) when he had major emotional outbursts, his father would either play him music or set him in front of instruments, and Mozart would get his energy out that way. Kind of like in the same way that, you know, 50s housewives would send their kids outside to play. Got it. Or 2020 parents will put their kids in front of YouTube. Yes, exactly. Exactly like like that, that. yes. Yes. Get a little Minecraft going, regulate those emotions, get your energy out, whatever. Regardless, by the time he's six, he's a very good piano player. He was composing little pieces that his father would essentially, like, dictate. And that is when his father had this idea. And it's kind of the same idea that Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears' parents had when they were young and, like, semi-talented. It's time for this kid to make him some money. Okay, yeah, I can uh, I can get behind this plan. Leopold takes his two children, and he decides he is going to market them as child prodigies. Mozart and his sister were toured around Europe for three years, beginning when Mozart was six. And we're going to go on a little diversion right here, a little Mozart-adjacent conversation, if you will. I want to talk about the word prodigy. Mm-hmm. So there's a great article by this author... Uh, named Blake Madden, called Extraordinary Desire, How Child Prodigies Are Made. And it lays out the case that prodigies are not born, they're made. And he argues that prodigies happen most often in fields where there are concrete parameters and repetitive rules. So fields like math, music, some sciences, 
competitive games like chess and sports. And they happen much more rarely in fields of study like literature, for example, or art, where the parameters are less defined. Obviously, this is the case with a lot of prodigies that come to mind, right? Math prodigy, music prodigy. You don't have, I, I can only think of like one prodigious poet at the sure. time right now. Sure. But anyway, the definition of prodigy is fairly straightforward. So this is someone who possesses exceptional talent in a certain field, usually before the age of 13. And that talent is often good enough that it would surpass the talents that otherwise could be acquired by adults. There are lots of theories about prodigiousness. Is that the right? Did I say that right? Prodigiousness? No, it's, uh, it's actually prodigiosity. <laughs> prodigiosity and its origin. Um, but there's basically one thing that's very clear, and that is that this proclivity for prodigiousness is neither genetic nor is it linked to intelligence. So there are some theories that include what's called the inspiration theory of creative prodigies, so musical prodigies, etc., which is that creativity in a certain field is simply innate in some people. But when you dig into the data, most of the data shows that child prodigies do one thing better than other children. Which is try to earn their parents' love and affection. So that's actually part of it. <laughs> but they do that by practicing. <laughs> they yeah. are just better at practicing than most other kids. Also known as stage mom syndrome. Yes. In fact, there are many children. There's like a whole club of children who are deemed prodigies in their youth who have grown up into adults who hate the term prodigy and have this like big campaign that like prodigy implies that there was no extra work that they put in. They had no like born gifts. They were like, we're forced to almost singularly focus on this one thing. And we got very good at the work ethic. We are not prodigies. This is not like a gift. Yeah. Process over talent, right? Like if you just spend 10 hours a day doing the same thing over and over again because your parents forced you to, turns out you can get really good at it. <laughs> yeah. Surprisingly good. People are like, wow, that's surprisingly good. And you're like, I put, I was surprisingly stunted as a child too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there's this one child prodigy featured in a movie called Jewels at Eight, which is about child prodigies. And this person's name is Rasta Thomas. And at the time that the movie was filmed in the 80s, he's a 27-year-old dancer. And he was adamant in his dismissal of the idea that he has some kind of innate talent. What he says is, quote, I think if you give any seven-year-old the training I had, you will get a product that is at the top of its game. I have had hours and hours and a million dollars invested into the training that I received. Where did they get a million dollars? I haven't watched the movie. I'm just quoting what I read. That's a lot of money they spent on a seven-year-old. <laughs> a lot of money. Um, and so, like you mentioned, this is a very, like, Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours scenario. There's another author uh, named Jeff Colvin who wrote a book called Talent is Overrated. And he specifically calls out Mozart in his book. And he says people like Mozart and Tiger Woods, who are canonically considered to have, quote, the gift, actually share another common denominator of demanding fathers who doubled as their demanding teachers and who started teaching them before the age of three. Well, OK. Got a formula for success. Exactly. So for everybody out there who's still got a two-year-old, you're in luck. Got there, a formula. There's one other piece of this puzzle. So there's essentially like three pieces of this puzzle to make a prodigy. Have a task that has some sort of repetition that can be drilled into a child if they practice it well, right? Okay. Have a demanding parent or mentor who doubles as a teacher start them young. And then there's actually this other third element of making a prodigy. 
And that is this sort of magic ingredient that the kid loves whatever they're doing. So they have to love math. They have to love chess or whatever. There's something about it to them that is motivating. So that could obviously be external validation. What one woman who studies gifted and prodigious children uh, calls, quote, the rage to master. Or, best case scenario, it actually brings them joy. Yeah. Hopefully uh, you're not just doing it out of anger as a child. (laughs) Right. So... Basically, like if if the child doesn't enjoy the task, they never will become a prodigy. They just will not practice it with enough precision or enough consistency unless, again, like forced. Even then, if there's no heart, you know, what are you going to get? Like flat Mozart snooze. You'll get a dancer like Brittany. (laughs) Yeah. Poor baby. So keep that in mind as we talk about Mozart's quote unquote gift. Anyway, his father has a family touring around Europe. His children would play for royals and in courts of nobility, and, you know, he would pocket the money. By this point, he realized that his son's talents were more profitable than his mediocre talents as a small-time composer and piano teacher. So the kids are the, kids are the draw now at this point. Mm-hmm. So this is when he really leans into exploiting his children. And, you know, a lot of this gets glamorized. Child star, they get all this attention. None of this was glamorous, especially not in the mid-1700s. I mean, I would be hard-pressed to find anything that I would consider glamorous in the mid-1700s. Right. But yeah, I imagine uh, child stardom was not one of them. No. So they are traveling in really rough conditions. They are living, like, in near destitution, essentially traveling from city to city where they're promised gigs, waiting on reimbursement from the patrons who invited them. They're staying in what is essentially like rundown motels. Every member of the family gets deathly ill on more than one occasion. Wait, it's a three-year tour? Yes. All over Europe. Woof. None of these terrible things really mattered to the elder Mozart because... The younger Mozart star was rising fast. Having a, a six-year-old who plays piano very well is cute and endearing. But a six-year-old who's been playing the piano for three years is still probably only like middling at best as a performer on a scale of toddler to expert, right? Sure, sure. What the draw was, was this spectacle of child stardom. So people really wanted to see these precious children dressed up like grown-ups and playing these instruments. It was mostly about the novelty of it. And because it was about the novelty, Wolfgang and his sister got the opportunity to perform in front of crowds. And if they messed up, people were like, ah, he's six. What are you going to do? <laughs> like, that's sure. cute. All of this combined, though, eventually gives Mozart this huge advantage of being a musician growing up in the 18th century. Very few of them had the opportunity to travel around Europe and perform from a young age. He has his father who can teach him and is willing to exploit him. He barely receives any other formal education, just in case you're wondering. Uh, a lot of his writing is nonsensical. He, like, is not fluent in any one language. It's okay. just, like, a okay. bunch of things coming together chaotically. But he, you know, is performing night after night. He's building the stage presence. He's mingling with nobility. Essentially, his path has been set for him starting at the age of six. Over the course of the many years that he's traveling around Europe, like I said, he's composing bits and pieces here. And by 1768, 69, so just to reframe, like when he's 12 or 13, he writes his first opera, as we do. 
as one does. However, if it had been up to his father, he would have finished the opera years before. His father was actually, like, notably angry that it took Mozart years to write an opera. Yeah, I mean, what's... Let's be real. Uh, Okay, so... What is cute about a 12-year-old writing an opera? Nothing. <laughs> what is cute about a 9-year-old writing an opera? Everything. Everything. Right? You missed golden opportunity. That window closed. You missed it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like low-rise jeans. When I was a teenager in the early 2000s, could pull it off. They're coming back. I'm in my mid-30s. No, thank you. That we are matured beyond that being a good look. Yes, operas by 12-year-olds are the low-rise jeans of the 1780s. Put that on a bumper sticker. Done. And while you're at it, start getting excited, because by the time he's in his mid-teens, Mozart is writing symphonies. Oh, my. So he's stepping on up. He goes through this like fairly prolific spell in his late teens. Um, at this point, they're back in Salzburg. He composes something like eight symphonies and other pieces of music to be performed by himself and others for the Archbishop of Salzburg. Good old Salzburg, home sweet home. (laughs) Yeah, he hated it. He thought it was like the dumpiest town ever. It was not exciting enough for him. But, you know, when you spend your uh, prepubescent years rubbing elbows with Marie Antoinette, I guess Salzburg is like... Kind of backwoods. Yeah, small town as it gets. So those are the things he's known for up until this period of time, right? He is at this point 18, 19. He has had a decade in the limelight. He is well-established as a musician. People still regularly play music that he wrote during those years. But what he's lesser known for, at least in the mainstream, is his proclivity for and obsession with feces and... Also, his sexual desire for his cousin. Oh, okay. Uh, was not expecting those those two things, uh, but got it. Yeah, the overlap of the Venn diagram of those two things is just a circle. Oh, no. Yeah, so those are two things that he would regularly combine into, oh, like, God. Oh, no. letters, explicit letters. Oh, okay, okay, got it. Just not mailing, just describing in letters. Yes, Okay, yes. okay. So that's as much as I'm going to say without a content warning, because it is about to be very gross. Oh, no, we're just starting? We're just starting. Oh, God, okay. So Mozart's version of dirty was, like, very, very dirty. Scatological, if you will. There is a full Wikipedia page about it. It is graphic. Wait, wait, there's a whole Wikipedia page, not just about Mozart, about Mozart and his scat fetish? And his scatological writings. So this is a whole genre of content that he produces. Is this like fan fiction? It's more like, um, so these explicit letters to his cousin, which have been archived. Oh, my. Um, Some songs we're going to talk about, a little bit of poetry. And I'll just say up front, I am not a fan of jokes that involve any sort of like bodily function it is i don't find them funny they actually really gross me out sorry if that's your thing don't hold it against you it's just not my jam and but here's what i'll say and this is about as far as i'll go in sharing this part of mozart's life he does not shy away from telling his cousin where he'd like to shit on her and what he'd like to do next Mm, mm, okay okay wait where where is it out of curiosity where can you find those letters? No, where would he like to shit on her? 
It is so vulgar. I am uncomfortable saying it. No, no, you have to. No, know. I really we, can't. It, we it are, is like we are so far it, down this rabbit hole. You cannot back out now. It makes me queasy to think about. Audrey, you owe our listeners. Okay, I don't know that I'll leave this in. It's so gross, Elliot. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> he says he wants to shit on her nose and watch it drip down her chin. Oh God! Oh no! <laughs> And she's into this? No. It's it's actually pretty oh, unclear what? how she responds. What? No. She does not end up becoming his wife. Can you imagine? Okay, so like I Mm-mm. get I get it. There it's a big world. Lots of people have lots of different things. Can you imagine somebody being like, Hey, is this your thing? And you'd be like, Not really and they're like, Yeah, well check it out anyway. Here's this letter. Let me <laughs> send you these. Six dozen letters about six this. Do- Seventy two letters. I mean like Dozens and dozens of letters. Oh, my God. No. Just cannot take a hint. Let me tell you this. Gentlemen, if you've written her between (laughs) three and four dozen scat fetish letters and she's not gotten back to you yet, it is not because she is short on postage. You should take that hint. She is probably not into it. The more you know. The more you know. And here's the thing. If you are into it, you deserve to be with a partner who is also into it. Yeah, don't try to force this with don't somebody who's not. Don't force it. Don't. Oh, God. There are people who consent to this. And if, like, if they are consenting, enthusiastically consenting, congratulations, you have found your match. If they are not, then it's time to stop. But it's stop, he does not, it sounds like. No. And at the same time that he's writing these letters, you know, he's writing his famous piano concertos and whatever, he also writes a song of the scat theme called Lick My Ass. <laughs> and it's even more vulgar sequel, Lick My Ass Nice and Clean. Oh, God. Because the implication there is that it was not clean to start with, which is, oh, man, I just, yeah, I regret this. I, I regret this. I do not have the stomach to read you the lyrics. They are so far beyond anything that our listeners would ever want to hear and I would never want them to come out of my mouth you are welcome to google them I didn't even copy paste them because I could not look at them much longer okay uh I have to say this we are committed to bringing our listeners the lesser known legacies Mm -hmm. of history's most notable people and I feel like it would be a disservice if there are works of Mozart that we are unwilling to bring to our audience. They can bring it to themselves. That is, this is a boundary I'm setting right now. No, hold on. I'm going to look it up. Okay. Okay. I got it here. Um, let's see. Okay. Let, yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, God. Okay. Y- you know what? I, I, take, I take it back. Oh, God. That is... Uh, Oh, God, that is horrible. <laughs> yeah, okay, sorry. Listen, I'm not going to read that. That's, I don't want to I, I don't, I don't subject you to this, honestly. If, you, if you're curious, uh, go go Wikipedia this. Yeah, it is Lick mir den Ersch fein recht schon sauber, I guess, which is Lick my arse right well and clean, uh, if you translate. And uh, yeah, oh, my God. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do it. Nope, nope, not for me. If you can believe it, these letters do not make him super popular with his cousin or any other lady in Salzburg. Ah, small town, small town. You know, hard to find the right one. Right. Limited options. So he's striking out with his cousin. He, at this point, is bored by his job. He's 22. 
he decides he's too good for this position that he's been given in Salzburg as like the court musician or whatever. He's a single young man. He's going to strike out on his own. It's 1777. And he's going to start freelancing. Okay. Go make some money with those talents. Other job, boring, steady income. Freelance job, exciting, but it paid more or less frequently. Sure, sure. He's, you know, giving some concerts. He's teaching rich kids how to play piano. And sometimes his travel expenses alone took up more money than he made for the gigs. But by the late 1770s, early 1780s, he ends up making bank. And for some context, you know, he leverages his child stardom, concerts, etc., into making 10,000 florins a year. I don't know what that is in dollars, but here's what I'll tell you. The average worker at the time made 25 florins a year. Oh, okay. So he's doing all right. Yes. Wealthy people were those who made 500 florins a year. And he's making 10,000. Mm-hmm. So he could have lived comfortably and securely for decades if he had any sort of forethought about his future. If his father had, instead of just doing the music lessons, had like spent a little bit of time on the math or the the finance lessons. Yeah, yeah. And the, hey, just because you're rich, rich, doesn't mean you need to be extravagant, extravagant. He blows through his money as quickly as he could get it. Wow. This, to me, feels like becoming a multimillionaire and trying to figure out just how to spend it all at once. Right. He's making 400 times more than the average person is. And he's like looking for ways to lose it. Yeah. Can you just imagine spending 400 years worth of money in a year? (laughs) I know. Basically, a lot of people think what actually happened was that he had a gambling problem. Uh, That's one way to do it. It's pretty well documented that he liked to gamble. There are other folks who believe that it is not unlikely that he also probably had bipolar disorder. Hmm. And he would go through periods of depression, but then he would go on these extravagant spending sprees that uh, are theorized to be ostensibly periods of mania. There's no, you know, no psychologist of the 1700s or whatever has diagnosed him. We are not making a diagnosis of Mozart. I am. You might not be, but I am. Yeah. I'm calling it. What I can tell you is he blew through 400 years of money in just a couple years. Great, great. During one of these particular periods of low funds, Mozart is once again forced to travel to Paris in order to put on concerts and, you know, make some more money. Oh, yeah. He's like blowing through all that money and then it's not like the end of his life. He's just like... He's like 24. (laughs) He's like 24. Okay, got it. (laughs) Yeah. Feast Um, or famine with this guy. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And if it... Yeah, God. <laughs> Sorry, I said Feast of Raymond, and then I thought about the lyrics of that song, and I regret it already. Oh, God. You'll never you'll never hear Mozart the same again. Or Pot Roast. Oh, my God. Go. <laughs> That's horrible. That's so bad. Back to Paris. This time, he takes his mother. It is expected that he will be received well and compensated accordingly. Everybody in Paris is like, ooh, la, la, come back. Uh, it doesn't quite go according to plan. Despite his mother protesting against going, she said she was too old because she was 57. He was 22, 23. But his 57-year-old mother is like, please do not make me go. His father, of course, says you will be going and forces the two of them to travel to Paris alone. They arrive. Times are tough. He's actually offered a number of positions, like a touring organist at Versailles. For whatever reason, he says no. 
at Versailles before it was about to be like, you know, symbol of the revolution mm-hmm. torn down. This is just in the opulent period, presumably. Presumably. Yeah. He says no. He and his mother end up having to pawn some of their valuables in order to afford temporary housing. The housing they can afford is grim. It's cold. There is little heat. Like, it's not very sanitary. There are no amenities. And within a few months of arriving, his mother gets very, very ill. But because he had no money, Mozart didn't call the doctor until it was too late. Oh, yikes. His mother dies. And instead of telling his father himself or arranging a funeral or any of the things that you would imagine a dedicated son would do, he basically sends a messenger back to tell his dad, like, hey, your wife's dead. Mozart's staying in Paris. Yikes. Not not very subtle. Not very uh, thoughtful. No. His father is very upset, essentially blames Mozart for his mother's death. And, you know, their relationship at this point is already tenuous. It becomes what I would describe as fraught <laughs> at this point. I would imagine. I would imagine so. Mozart, being the um, horny young man that he is, is still on the hunt for a wife. Okay. Okay. In early 1780, so at this point he's 24, he tries to court a woman named Aloisa. Aloisa Weber. It's spelled like Weber, but they're Austrian, so I imagine it's Weber. Mm-hmm. Right? Makes sense. He's courting her in Vienna. They had known each other back in Salzburg. Mozart and the Weber family had grown close when he was tutoring these this girl and her sisters. There's like four of them. He's giving them lessons. Each of these daughters were very talented singers and musicians. So their father, who was like a second cousin of Mozart's father, but also richer, was paying Mozart to come mentor these young girls who are, you know, some about his age, some a couple years younger. He courts her. He's like, please marry me. Pulls out all the stops. I imagine just endless letters. (laughs) All the letters. Gonna say, yeah. Gotta break out the letters if you're really serious. Aloisa is like, no. Like, very firm, no. Hard pass, no, no, no. Doesn't entertain it at all. Mozart is like, but I could help you with your career. I'm famous and you want to be a famous singer. And Aloisa is like, I'm a good enough singer. I don't need to marry you. So she doesn't. Okay. Mozart, obviously, does the next logical thing. Scat letters. Courts her younger sister instead. Oh, oh, that's that's a pro move right there. Just work your way down the line. That's right. That's actually what happens. So he goes to the next in line. Her name is Constance, and they court for a little bit. Uh, they do break up briefly, though, because scandal. Constance once let another man measure her calf in a parlor game. Oh, my. Tumultuous from the start. Yes. Finally, August 4th, 1782, they're married. He's 26, she's 20. Within a year, she is pregnant with the first of their six children. Like his father before him, Mozart insisted that his children not be breastfed. Wait, the like like his family? Yes. Where the five kids mm-hmm. before him and his sister died. Mm-hmm. He wrote... I was quite determined that even if she were able to do so, my wife was never to nurse her child. Yet, I was equally determined that my child was never to take the milk of a stranger. I wanted the child to be brought up on water, like my sister and myself. How's <laughs> that working out for you, buddy? It goes very poorly. So, so poorly. Oh, no. Like I said, this was kind of a common thing for the middle class at the time, barley water. Uh, <laughs> spoiler, it's fatal. You can't just feed children barley water. They're newborns. Yeah. Wife has their first child. 
by the time the midwife and his mother-in-law convince Mozart that his child is in dire need of breast milk, the child was too sick to recover and died within two months of birth. What the fuck? His wife would go on to give birth five more times, and only two survived infancy, which again is an incredibly high mortality rate. Yes. Even it's a, for then. Yeah, even for then, and it's the same as his family. Turns out they have now a lot of good evidence this will kill your kids, Nine. and he keeps doing it. Nine children dead of barley water. The fuck? Infant mortality, right, was about 50% until the 20th century, which, by the way, is just very recent. Yes. Yes, it is. He's at 66%, and his parents are a little bit above that. Yeah. I mean, like, this is the thing. So earlier when I said if you have a two-year-old, you can make them into a prodigy. You probably can. Uh, just a side note, they may be really stupid with other stuff. <laughs> like, like not be able to keep their kids alive stupid. Man. Yeah. It goes poorly. But Mozart keeps chugging along. He's composing. He's performing. Not bothering him. The kids are dead. It seems to not <laughs> be. A, what the fuck? Yeah, he only wrote two major pieces in minor. One of them was after his mother died, and one was before that. Like, no songs or music dedicated to his four dead children. Wait, he doesn't, like, write, like, sad, depressing Mm-mm. symphonies or anything after? Mm-mm. Wow. No. In fact, his star in Vienna at this point is actually rising. He's getting steady work. That city is popping off in the late 18th century, late 1700s, right? Vienna is where it's at. No little Salzburg anymore. Fine ladies are into all kinds of stuff there. Mm -hmm. He acquires some wealth. And once again, he starts spending extravagantly, which is quite unfortunate because if you'll recall in the timeline of shitty things that start to happen in Europe in the late 1780s, the Austro-Turkish War breaks out. Uh, Yeah, one of my favorite Turkish wars. Wealth across the country diminishes. General public, no money for entertainment. Aristocratic class is not investing. They're not patrons of the arts. They're really just trying to avoid having their heads cut off. Right? They're laying low. 1787, more trouble strikes. Both Mozart's father and his pet starling die within one week of each other. Wait, his pet starling? He had a pet starling. What's a starling? It was very near and dear to him. What's a starling? A bird. You say it like I should know. Yeah, like a little songbird, a starling. I've never had a starling before as a pet. Yeah, I don't think many people did. Mozart had one. But you just like, you knew what a starling was. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have a starling as a pet? No, but I I know some birds. I've heard of birds. (laughs) Excuse (laughs) me for not having heard of birds. (laughs) So these two, you know... Wait, what was the other tragedy? I, I His totally dad forgot. Dad dies. Dad dies, and then the bird dies. <laughs> oh, oh, got it. Okay, dad and dad and the bird. Did the bird have a name? Uh, I don't know. But here's what I'll tell you: uh, Mozart did not go back to Salzburg for his father's funeral. But he did throw a massive funeral for his pet. Oh, that's that's how that's how you send a message. <laughs> yeah. Quote: Mourners in heavy veils marched in procession, sang hymns, and listened to Mozart recite a poem he'd written for the occasion. By a tiny graveside, the world's greatest composer spoke with love of his starling, gay and bright, who was not night, not naughty, not quite. He he legitimately did a poetry reading for the bird mm-hmm. at the funeral. Bird's dead. He does not. And then he's like, fuck you, dad. <laughs> yeah, both his parents. He's like, okay, they're dead now, I guess. Goodbye. It may be that uh, 
he, like some of the other adults who were former child, quote-unquote, prodigies at the time, uh, did not really appreciate the years and years of 10 hours of practice uh, <laughs> no. against their will. No. And when it came time to be rid of them, they were glad to see the parents go. It's a, it's a pattern that holds true. 1788 at this point, so it's the late 1780s. He is um, 32. He moves his family to the suburbs. He's trying to, like, save a little money, get out of the city. There's a war going on, needs to be more prudent. And it would have been a prudent decision if he had done what he was advised to do, which was move into a more reasonably priced rental house. But what he did instead was just get a bigger house. Moves to the suburbs, bigger house, still spending a ton of money. Again, it's not great with money thing, really tracks. He starts borrowing money from his friends. People note that he becomes visibly depressed. And his work slows, audiences dwindle. It seems like he was experiencing like a real depression, some burnout. War's going on. War starts to wrap up in the early 1790s. By then, his energy seems to have recovered. He had this period of, quote, high productivity again. So we're just like looping through these different periods of emotional volatility. Snip, snap, snip, snap. It seems like in 1790, he found a couple, like, great patrons who were willing to pay him once again for his music and for him to write music. And they also were paying him for this dance music. Dance music? Mm-hmm. So Mozart, I guess he's like DJ Mozart, starts writing dance music, little bits and pieces instead of these big operas and symphonies. Man, you know what? I've always said this, but I think I think he really sold out. I much prefer his early work. <laughs> right. <laughs> When he when he got commercial, it was exactly. just, ugh, such God. a cliche. He was able to pay off some debts, though, so yeah. he was in better spirits. That's why you sell out. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's what happens. 100%. 100%. When the uh, podcast networks come knocking on our door, <laughs> we will sell out, and you will be hearing ads for HelloFresh like nobody's fucking <laughs> business. Oh, you want to talk about Harvest Bowls? I love Harvest Bowls. Yes. <laughs> Madison Reed, hair color, great. Yeah. It's so shiny. My hair looks great. This segment on looking Mozart's asshole is brought to you by Casper. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, call us. We're here. Unfortunately, this joy was also short-lived. <laughs> by November of 1971. Literally, we're talking about years here. This motherfucker's not even 35. He has done all of this before the age of 35. Live past die young. Yeah. Well, I guess he's 35 at this point. But it's November. He's 35. He gets very, very ill. Rumors fly. He's been poisoned by a rival. That's not true. No evidence. Likely he experienced either like a common strep or a kidney infection. Wait, what? Yeah, whatever. I mean, listen, this this man was not hygienic. It would not be if he had E. coli, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. We we have we have reliable <laughs> sources, let me tell you. So whatever the cause, December fifth, seventeen ninety one, curtains for Mozart. He's thirty five. He did live fast. He did die young. Yeah, he actually did. Okay, got it. He was buried in an unmarked common grave. And I'm going to some clarification here, because lots of people think he was buried, like, in a pauper's grave. They thought he was poor. Wait, unmarked common grave, though. So this is different. There were essentially three tiers of graves <laughs> at the time. The first was a pauper's grave. Sounded just like what it is. Unmarked mass grave. Get the bodies out of there. Hole for your bones. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. What? That's what it is. <laughs> he 
Yes, yes. This episode of Mozart Holes <laughs> is what you mean. Just saying. Okay, common grave is different. It was a grave for individuals who were not the aristocracy. It was still unmarked, but it was not a mass grave. The high-tier aristocratic folk of the time got to keep their graves. Ooh, the fancy graves. Mm-hmm. If you were in a common grave, after 10 years, they dug it up and reused it. They, Wait. like, moved your bones somewhere. Where did they put them? No one knows. You got to dig another grave to put the bones in. You could burn them, I guess, at that point, if you're not trying to just, like, burn through fat and muscle. You can probably, like, get rid of bones. I have no idea. Here's the thing. No one knows where Mozart's bones are. They were dug up after 10 years and just, there's no documentation. It's not, <laughs> just no good documentation of Austrian bone graves. Who was digging up the bones to remove them somewhere else. Right. Yeah. So no one knows where his actual skeleton is. Researchers have like a gist of his burial site. Like it's probably in this area. They There have been some gravestones, I don't know, sculptures erected around the area. It's like... Mozart's bones were probably here at some point for 10 years, 250 years ago, but no one really knows. And so that is sort of like the anticlimactic end of Mozart's very chaotic life. Yeah, yeah, extremely chaotic. And so for the false legacy of being a prodigy, I don't really hold him accountable for that, but I'm throwing it in there. His ambivalent treatment of his mother's death for essentially starving his own children to death, and for the scat-themed poetry and songs I had to read (laughs) while researching this episode, Mozart is not my hero. Did you know that the phrase greasy desire... Oh, God, what have you... Why? I was talking. Were you not listening to me? (laughs) You did this last time, too. I saw you looking down. I thought you were thinking. No. I, I was thinking. You were, you were reading. I was thinking, you how do I get the Googling. phrase greasy desire out of my brain? Uh, but now I can't. Did I know the phrase greasy desire what? Uh, appears in the in the song. Uh-huh. I read it. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome for that, listeners. Now, <laughs> you have a glimpse of actually one of the tamer lines <laughs> of some of Mozart's scatologically themed music. Well, if people have a uh, greasy desire to follow along next week, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep, and please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week, don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.